men and the 47 uh, men that were the translators that did the active work of translating uh, would refer to other sources and, and allow other input to come in. It's interesting to note uh, the, the care with which these men and the, the reverence with which these men took upon them the task. Most of them were men of very well-educated, probably some of the most educated men in the world at the time, were well-versed in ancient languages. Uh, many of them spoke fluently several languages. Uh, one of them spoke 15 different languages fluently and uh, knew, them, uh, knew how to read and write in them. And uh, several of those were ancient languages, so ones that weren't even uh, in the modern-day world at that time. And um, then we have um, several Bibles that we spoke of, English versions that had been done prior to this. And we gave those to you last week. And uh, one of them was the Tyndale Bible. And I just wanted to say a few words uh, about Tyndale. Um, Tyndale was one of the ones that said <clears throat> the impact of... Uh, uh, let me see, make sure I got the right ones here. I'm sorry. He said, uh, if God spare my life ere many years... I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scriptures than thou dost. And he said that to a religious leader of the day. His idea was that the common man would have the Word of God uh, preserved and inerrant in, in, um, uh, in the English language. And so he, he spent his life's work doing this. Much of our King James Bible, as much as perhaps 90% of it, uh, came almost verbatim from the Tyndale uh, translation. Uh, out of the 47 men, they were broken into three groups. We talked about that last week. Each group uh, were assigned a passage of Scripture, and all of the men in that group uh, were to translate the same passage. When they were done, they brought them all together into the group and reviewed it, and there had to be unanimous agreement on a translation to send to the other two groups. Uh, once the other two groups received them, they reviewed them. They also had to be uh, in 100% agreement on uh, the translation work that had been done. Uh, once that was done, there was another committee of, uh, of two men from each of the groups that were brought together, and that final group did a final review and revision of everything, and uh, they also had to be in agreement that it was uh, accurate, and so there was a lot of accuracy there. I want to review that very quickly because I want to make this statement, and we made it last year, uh, last, last year, we made it last week, but I want to make sure we understand this, that there, on the human side of things, that gives us a lot of assurance that there was so much accuracy in Scripture. But can I tell you this, that there is no underestimating the, the not only ability, but the fact that God enabled these men. God could have used uneducated men to do the same thing and preserved His Word without error if He had so chosen to do. But He used learned men. And perhaps maybe for us to be a little bit easier to, to realize that yes, He has preserved His Word without error in these things. But understand this, that we cannot rely upon just the scholarliness of these fellows. We cannot rely just upon their heart and their goodness and their purity as our sole argument for why we believe this to be preserved without error. We also have to understand that God has done so because He promised that He would do so. That He has preserved it verbally without error, and we believe that to be in the King James uh, Version of Scripture. 
Uh, I want to share just a few more things with you regarding the uh, the translators, and then we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to move into some of the manuscript things that we want to uh, deal with. But uh, regarding these men that were uh, that were part of the team, uh, the forty-seven men. These men were men that were very holy men, very righteous men. Many of them were very humble men. Uh, in fact, comments were made in their day and time of how many of them did not feel that they were adequate for the task. In fact, others thought more highly of them than they thought of themselves regarding their own uh, ability. And, and when they looked at the task at hand of taking God's Word, uh, I, I wonder about oftentimes preachers that so arrogantly come to the pulpit. Because uh, there, is, there is no way that a man could ever stand before God's Word and feel that he is adequate to the task. And a man that does so, I don't think, has any business being in a pulpit. I don't mean that to sound bad, but I would look at that idea and that mindset with these translators. That if there were some of these men that had sought for this position and said, boy, I'm the most educated and the most learned in the country, and I think you ought to let me be part of the translation work, that would have been probably the first warning sign to get rid of them. These men were men that were holy men. They had a reverence for the task and for what God's Word was. They understood the significance of it. And I'll tell you, you know, we live in a day where we handle God's Word so carelessly. Uh, even as Christians, I'm not talking about just pastors. And I, I think pastors are certainly guilty many times of mishandling God's Word and not putting due diligence into it. But even as God's people many times, we live in a country where we don't have any problems getting our hands on a Bible. It's, we, and I'm thankful, aren't you? I'm glad for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But it has, because there has been no struggle for the Word of God in our generation, there has become an apathy toward it. And uh, there are countries that uh, would give anything tonight to have even one page of Scripture in their own language. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that could be done to, to provide that. And we as God's people probably need to get more involved in that type of a thing. I was talking with a man several years ago at a men's retreat that was uh, a national from the, the country of Jordan. And Jordan being part of the, the Muslim nations group uh, over there, and yet they have, uh, they have freedom to go between the Muslim nations. And he said that they had a very good religious liberty at that time. He was a Christian fellow in a, in a Baptist church. In fact, when he came to the States to study, he got saved and got into a good... A fundamental Bible-believing church, and the pastor there is a friend of mine. And so we were at this men's retreat, and I was talking with him. He said, Brother, he said, if you could get the, the Bible, uh, a good version of the Bible, translated in Arabic, if you get uh, one that's as close to the King James as they can possibly translate in Arabic, he said, I can take as many Bibles as you can get over there and distribute them, not just in Jordan, but even in uh, places like Syria and Iraq and Iran, and Afghanistan, some of these countries over there, uh, he said, I can, I can do that. He said, I have freedom. I can uh, go across borders, and they don't even search me. And he said, I can take whatever I want to in those countries. They don't let us. And I thought, boy, here's an open door, and we don't uh, do it. But I thought of these people over there, that many of them that are saved and God's people over there, 
would hunger and thirst for God's Word. And yet we very rarely uh, look at God's Word in that light, do we? Uh, even when we read it, even when we have a regular time, and we say, okay, I'm going to have devotions today, uh, it doesn't soak in. There's not the, the fervency there many times. And I know I'm making an overly generalized statement, but I think the condition of Christianity in the United States, for the large part, is very lukewarm at best and probably very cold because of our view of God's Word. And uh, these men, I wanted to point out to you what their attitude was because I believe that makes a big difference. And uh, I want you to understand that they had uh, great reverence. Uh, this is one of the quotes that they said. It was in their notes to the readers. And I want to, I want to read it to you. The translator said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but a blessed thing it is, and will bring us to everlasting blessedness in the end. When God speaketh unto us to hearken, when He setteth His word before us to read it, when He stretcheth out His hand and calleth to answer, Here am I, here are we to do Thy will, O God. The Lord worketh care and conscience in us to know Him and to serve Him that we may be acknowledged of Him at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, to who, with the Holy Ghost, be all praise and thanksgiving. Amen. This is the heart of the translators. To be able to say that when God stretcheth out His hand and calleth to answer, Here am I. To do God's will. It's interesting, uh, as they go on to say a little bit later in the and the uh, note to readers. The Scripture is a fountain of most pure water, springing up unto everlasting life. And what marvel! The original thereof being from heaven, not of earth. The author being God, not man. The inditer, the Holy Ghost, not to wit the apostles or prophets. The penmen, such as were sanctified from the womb and in, induced uh, with the principal portion of God's Spirit. The matter, verity, piety, purity, uprightness. The form, God's Word, God's testimony, God's oracles, the Word of truth, the Word of salvation, and many, many more names have been given to it even in the Scriptures. The effects, light of understanding, stableness of persuasion, repentance from dead works, Newness of life, holiness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost, and lastly, the end and reward of the study thereof, fellowship with the saints, participation of the heavenly nature, fruition of an inheritance immortal, uh, fruition, I'm sorry, of an inheritance immortal, undefiled, and that never shall fade away. Happy is the man that delighteth in the Scripture, and thrice happy that meditateth in it day and night. This is the view of the translators in looking at God's Word and the task before them. What an amazing thought. These were not men who came to the translating table casually, nor did they come to the translating table self-sufficient of their own education and knowledge. 
But they came dependent and humbled that God enabled them to do the work that He had so called them to do. They praised some of the earlier uh, translating work that had been done. They said, We acknowledge them to have been raised up of God for the building and furnishing of His church and that they deserve to be had of us and of posterity in everlasting remembrance. Therefore, blessed be they and most honored be their name and break the ice and give the onset upon that which helpeth forward to the saving of souls. They looked at these men that had come before them in the translating work, and they knew that God had raised them up for such that time. Their attitude to their own translating work, they write this, Yet for all, uh, yet for all that, as nothing is begun and perfected at the same time, and the latter thoughts are thought to be the wiser, so it we building upon their foundation that went before us, and being holpen by their labors, do endeavor to make that better which they left so good, no man we are sure hath caused to mislike us. If we will be the sons of the truth, we must consider what it speaketh, and trample upon our own credit, yea, and upon other men's too, if either be any way a hindrance to it. In what sort did these assemble? In the trust of their own knowledge, or in the sharpness of wit, or deepness of judgment, as if it were an arm of flesh. No, they trusted in Him that hath the key of David, opening, and not man shutting. They prayed to the Lord, the Father of our God, to the effect, O oh, let Thy Scriptures be my pure delight. Let me not be deceived in them, neither let me deceive by them. This was the heart of the translators. For 270 years after the King James Version was written, and we know that in the early versions and the printing there were some spelling errors and things of that nature, and we understand that, but the words were not changed. 270 years transpired before anybody came out with another English translation. What an amazing tribute to our King James Bible. What an amazing thought as we think of the preservation in God's promise that we've read tonight, that thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. What an amazing testimony. The King James Bible dominated the time in history, characterized by the greatest Bible preaching and teaching, the greatest missionary work, the greatest evangelism, the greatest building of churches and doctrinal development this world has never known. All because the King James Bible is preserved without error. What an amazing thought about our King James Bible. The King James Bible has become the primary influence on literature, on education, on government, on law, on philosophy of numerous generations of English-speaking people around the globe. It has been read, it has been studied, it has been quoted, it has been memorized, believed and loved by more people than any other version of the Bible in any language of history, including that of the original languages. What an amazing preservation has taken place. When we look at the translating work, we look at the scholarliness, the, the credentials of these men. We look at their holiness and their godliness. We look at their heart and their attitude. 
we look at this group and we say God put them together to do His work. When we look at their dependence upon Him, we can rest assured that we do not have a translating work that was aided solely by the arm and the flesh of man, but it was aided literally by God Himself. Well, we're going to take a few moments, and uh, we've got some time tonight, and with not so many people here, I'm going to switch gears from the translators, and uh, I hope that that will be a help to you. I'll tell you, uh, I love the King James Bible. When I was a kid, I didn't even know there was another one, and uh, it wasn't until I got older that I knew there were other versions out there, and I'll tell you this, even from a kid, uh, the argument, well, it's hard to understand. I'm sorry, but at six years old, nobody told me I couldn't understand it. I just did. Uh, I understood it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was talking to somebody a while back. Uh, I was listening to Sam Gipp, who does a lot of uh, defense of Scripture. He's uh, real big on the Scriptures. And uh, he had made a, a comment one time. Um, uh, and I'm trying to, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. Um uh, what was my mindset on that? I have to think of that later. All right, we'll go into the manuscripts. I'll come back to that when, I, when it comes back into my mind. Uh, oh, I know what it was. Uh, he said that uh, if you take and read uh, the scripture uh, all the way through from beginning to end, and he said when you take out uh, proper names uh, out of uh, when you, when you don't consider those in this in this thought that he had, and he said you just look at the words that are used. He said the vast majority of words used, especially in the New Testament and almost without exception in the verses that deal with our salvation, he said almost all of them use exclusively one-syllable words. That's an amazing thought. Uh, most people say, well, it's hard, you know, it's got the these and the thous and I don't understand. I don't know too many people that don't know what thee means. And I don't know too many people that know, don't know what thou means. We may not use them in common day language, but we understand it. It's not that difficult. And if we don't understand a word, then we need to get back to the generation that I came from, where when I went to mom and dad and I had a school lesson due, and I said, Mom, I've got to find this vocabulary word. What does it mean? You know what my mom would tell me? Go look it up. <laughs> look it up. Find out what it means. It's, it's important. Uh, and, you know, I used to hate that, didn't you? I mean, she could have told me what it meant. She made me go find a book and look it up. But you know what? I, I remembered that definition a lot better looking it up myself. And I'll encourage you, uh, since we have our King James Bible written in the King's English, there's a great dictionary. The Webster's 1828 Unabridged Dictionary has every word that I can think of in our King James Bible that uh, it very clearly defines. In fact, many times in the definition will refer to the Bible passages that they're found in. And what an amazing dictionary that is. If you don't have one, uh, find one. If you can't find one, I know that you can look them up online. Uh, there's plenty of free sources out there to find up the words. So, uh, folks, I, I, I stand by this. Um, our Bible doesn't need to be rewritten. And I heard somebody say this a few weeks ago or a week or so ago. It doesn't need to be rewritten. It doesn't need to be revised. It just needs to be reread. And we just need to have a revival of God's people coming to God's Word and saying, this is His Word, and I'm going to read it. Uh, now, there are other uh, versions out there. We're going to talk about those. And, um, and the, the difference in them is their, their versions may contain a verse or two, 
uh, that is exactly what God said because it matches what we have in our King James Bible. Um, but they have a, a Bible that contains some of the words of God, whereas we hold to the fact we have a Bible that contains all of the words of God. There's nothing in here that he did not intend for us to have. So I'm going to take a few moments to uh, talk about some text. I'm not going to delve real deep into it. We're going to give you a quick high-level overview. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll give you some, some more detail in on this. But uh, there are two main uh, sources uh, for our translations. Uh, one of them is what we call the received text, uh, or some people refer to it. it, it they use, uh, I think it's the Latin words, textus receptus. Uh, and uh, the received text uh, is a, a group of manuscripts uh, that were put together. Now, let me try to back up a little bit and give you a, a little bit of what happened in the early church. So in the early church, there uh, was, after, after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, there, were, uh, there was the church at Jerusalem. There wasn't much else as far as outlying areas. Um, they, they tended to stay in the Jerusalem area. They, they liked that. Uh, the Antioch area, uh, certainly the Bible says um, they were called Christians first at Antioch. And uh, that area was a hotbed for Christianity. Um, then God begins to bring, you know, they were not doing uh, the commission that God had told them to do, which was to go into how much of the world? All the world, right? So God kind of nudges them. And isn't it amazing how God does that? Uh, he finds ways to nudge you and get you out of the nest, so to speak. And so he brings persecution. And the Bible says that when the persecution came, that the Christians scattered. They went all over the world. Well, guess what they did when they went all over the world? Uh, they started churches. They started telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so much so that in the book of Acts, before the last of the apostles had died... They actually were accused of those that had turned the world upside down. What an amazing thought. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say today of God's people, we are those that have turned the world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they just went everywhere. They couldn't go anywhere without talking about God. Uh, you ever get so excited about something, you just can't, I mean, you're like, oh, I can't wait to tell it. Uh, or somebody tells you a secret and it just kills you to try to keep it because you want to tell somebody so bad about it. I, I remember when my wife and I were expecting our first child and, and we, we wanted certain people to know first. You know how that goes? And, and we had to wait and we had to wait and it's like, oh, I want to tell somebody. And uh, there's an excitement there. You know, we've lost that. Uh, when we talk about uh, you know God's Word and how we have uh, learned, we've become very careless with the handling of God's Word. We've become very apathetic to the handling of God's Word. I believe a lot of that is because we've lost the, the great excitement and zeal of the fact that we're God's children, that He saved us, and the redemption story and the gospel story, and all of the excitement that goes with that. And, and, and I don't know uh, that we would get excited about that again. And wherever we go, we just got to tell people about it. And go everywhere we can. So this happened. They spread. They scattered. They went all over the world. And yet there were still some, some portions of Scripture being written. The Apostle Paul was still writing some letters. And um, so, so what happened was uh, this one uh, place over here had uh, maybe a, a letter from Paul. And this one over here had maybe some of the Old Testament uh, Scriptures and some of the uh, New Testament uh, uh, books that had been written. They may have a, 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 a manuscript here or there. I don't know about you, but I've got uh, this Bible right here is probably about the sixth Bible or so in my lifetime, and it's it's just about on its last leg. It's uh, it gets it gets rattered and tattered 
because when you use it, 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 it falls apart. Uh, even if you take very, very good care of it, uh, it'll have a tendency to get frayed and, and, and things will happen, smudges get on it. And so the early manuscripts, the original manuscripts, uh, they were used. They weren't a museum piece. They weren't put behind glass. They weren't treated like they are today as archaeological artifacts. They were used. And because they were used, they, they would have problems like my Bible has here. And so to, to make sure that we still had those letters, they would, they would sit down and they would write copies of them. They were so, so careful and so meticulous with it to write these copies out that it would take literally one full day for them to pen uh, one page of Scripture. There are some stories that have been told of some of the scribes when they would get to uh, 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 certain words uh, like the name of God or, or God's title, that they would go and get a new quill and come back and write His name with a new quill. They were so careful in their, in their transcribing of things. Uh, it, it's amazing to see the care with which it was taken and which it was done. And so, so lots of copies are being made. Usually they would uh, uh, sit in the middle of a room and dictate, and there would be several scribes. And back then, scribes uh, were known, that was a trade you could do, like a printer today. You could uh, be known as a scribe, and you could write things. You were, you were well-educated, you could uh, write things clearly. And uh, so they would, they would uh, dictate these things, and they would go back and just meticulously be careful of these pages and uh, dealing with this. So they had all these uh, manuscripts that went around, and, and they're, they're mainly uh, handled by uh, the Christians. Now, the Christians were mainly in the, the, uh, uh, the Antioch and uh, Jerusalem area, and then as they began to branch out, more and more groups of them. However, over in Alexandria, Egypt, and you say, boy, that's a, a far-fetched way there, uh, and notice that in Scripture, there's really not a whole lot of good that comes out of Egypt ever, um, other than maybe the few times that, uh, that God had used uh, Egypt for a place of refuge, like when Jesus was born or something of that, that nature. But really, as far as the spiritual condition of that area of the world, it was never really a hotbed for Christianity. In fact, uh, a lot of the philosophers and uh, a lot of people have heard about the, the, the uh, knowledge, the search, the thirst for knowledge that took place in the, the Library of Alexandria and how big of a, uh, how famous of a thing that was. All of your great uh, philosophers uh, that are looked at from a human perspective, uh, Aristotle, uh, Socrates, and uh, some of these folks, uh, Origen, uh, had times where they spent in Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, Origen almost exclusively was in that area. And we've talked about how many times he changed Scripture just because he didn't agree with it. And so copies were made uh, as well over in Alexandria, Egypt. The problem with the people in Alexandria, Egypt, is they didn't believe what the, the, the Scriptures said. And so they would make their own notes, sometimes footnotes, sometimes they would change verses to make it match what they felt or what they believed. They did not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was one of the big ones. And so they, they began to uh, write their own versions and copies of Scripture. Origen did his works. Uh, around the 150 to 230 or so time frame A.D. Uh, years later, uh, Jerome, who Saint Jerome, who the Catholic Church uh, uh, said, uh, we want you to go and, and make a revision and give us uh, the Latin Vulgate, uh, which is the work he was primarily involved in. Uh, he went and got Origen's works and studied from those and, and made his changes to that 
those manuscripts. Well, uh, let's, let's back up a minute. So we have a ton of manuscripts being done by Christians who were in the early church. They were on fire. They were excited. And then you have a group of um, <laughs> well-educated, perhaps, but completely spiritually ignorant, certainly unsaved uh, philosophers that were also making copies, and they were making changes in their scriptures. And so there came to be two lines of manuscripts. There was a group of texts that were compiled, and manuscripts that were compiled. They were compiled from the hotbeds of Christianity. At the time of the King James writing, uh, uh, translating, the translators had access to almost 5,000 manuscripts that were in what we call the received text. Uh, in those, there were some misspellings. There were some little things here and there. But for the most part, 5,000 of them agreed over 95% of the time. And all of them agreed to some degree in every point. Uh, not even one word being gone. There were some misspellings. There were some names that had been rewritten in a different way. Uh, but you still knew what the words were. And that was the problem. That, that was the difference. Whatever differences there were, were not in the words themselves, but in the, the, the structure of how they, how they wrote it. When you get over to the Alexandrian texts, uh, they've been changed over, over 30,000 times by origin, and then later on another 6,000 or so times, or five, a little over 5,000 times by St. Jerome. And uh, there are only three surviving texts from the Alexandria group of texts that uh, were used uh, early on. Uh, they were the Sinaiticus, and this was a manuscript that was found at the, in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was found in a trash bin. It had been there for many years, and uh, the fellow that discovered it came along and said, What's this? They said, Well, it's some scripture. It's an old manuscript. And here's what happened. They took that manuscript, and they found out that it was an older manuscript than the manuscripts that were in the received text. And can I tell you this, that just because it was older did not mean it was better because of where it came from. Uh, there were some problems with it. In fact, it was considered to be such an inferior version of Scripture that even the monks in the monastery had thrown it into the trash bin. That's what they thought of it. There was another uh, copy that was found uh, in the Vatican, and that was that became known as the Vaticanus. And so there's a one one version of Scripture from the Alexandrian line that was found in Sinai. There was one version found in the Vatican. And then there was one that was found in Alexandria, Egypt uh, as well, and it was known as the Alexandrius. And so those three uh, were used by some translators later on, and we're going to talk a little bit about them uh, here in just a, a little bit. But those three specifically were used. Now, those three do not agree with each other at all, none of them. Uh, there are so many differences between all three of them that when you sit down and you say, okay, um, if I sat here and I dictated a letter to, we have four people in the auditorium, and I'm dictating pretty quickly, and then I gather those all up and we compare them, there's going to be some differences maybe, but they're all going to be pretty much in agreement. But if I went to Brother Dan's house and dictated something to him, and he wrote it down. Then I go over to Brother Harold's house and I dictate something to him. Then maybe back to Miss Carmen's house, which is at Brother Dan's house also, and dictate something to her. And then maybe to Miss Sandy's house and dictate something to him, her. And then I bring them back and none of them agree. 
How do they know which one is what I actually said? There, there's no way to tell. It's pretty good if, if they all agree and then say, you know what? Yeah, there may be some misspellings here. There may be some names that aren't right, the, the same uh, spelling or the same usage that they were in, in, in this manuscript. But hey, they all agree, and they agree in every point. Well, the, the, the difference then was we had this line over here of the received text that our King James translators and those that had preceded them, the Cambridge Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Tyndale Bible, all of these English versions, they all used the received text as the source material for the translation. Then comes along a couple fellows that are linguists, uh, fellows by the name of uh, Westcott and Hort. Uh, they're, they had PhDs in linguistics and uh, languages, and uh, they take uh, these three uh, minor, what we call the minority texts uh, from Sinai, from Alexandria, and from the Vatican, and they say, okay, because of their antiquity, we believe them to be superior in accuracy. And so we're going to use these three. The problem was none of them agreed. And so a lot of discretion in translation was used by Westcott and Hort as they provide these things. And all of our other versions of Scripture, all of them, rely heavily upon the minority texts, the three that do not agree. And I don't mean this to be incendiary. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. But even the New King James Version made sure that every verse in their version did not, was not untouched by some kind of change. And they went and they referred to a lot of minority text versions. There are some major changes in our New King James Version Bible. And so you say, Brother Greg, why is that important? Because I hold in my hand tonight, or I have laying here on the pulpit in front of me tonight, the preserved, inerrant, infallible Word of God. There is, no, there is nothing in here that is not what God wanted. There is no problem with it. There are no conflicts with it. If you find a problem or a conflict, it's not with this book. It may be with our understanding, but it is definitely not with this book. Um, so we'll take some more time to deal with some of the textual things since then, since the King James translators. Other manuscripts have been found, again, that... Uh, can easily be in full agreement with the received text. They found now well over, uh, I think it was like 15,000 was the last number I've heard now at this point of additional texts that have been found that still are in full agreement with the received text. And folks, I, I, I'm telling you, and again, I don't want us to rely on just reasoning and logic because at the end of the day, we believe this to be preserved without error because God said it. That's all I need. But we're doing all of this study to give us a working knowledge of how we came about our King James Bible so that we, when we witness to somebody who's had a different belief system and we all of a sudden are able to show them the error of that and the vacuum now is created in them, where is truth? If, if that wasn't truth, then where can I find truth? We need to be able to, uh, be able to teach them that they can have this confidence in this truth that we can say without any doubt that we hold in our hands the preserved and inspired Word of God. And uh, we certainly want to understand that. So uh, we'll deal with some more of the manuscript stuff next week. I hope that will be a help to you. I don't want to be confusing in it, so I'm going to try to, to make it as, as simple as we can. Uh, next week we'll 
probably be our last week in dealing with our King James Bible. Then we'll move on. Uh, we'll probably take a couple week break and then move on to uh, another group of folks, probably the Jehovah's Witnesses that we'll look at uh, as far as sharing the gospel with them and how we can deal with that. And uh, so anyway, I want to encourage you to be praying about the series uh, as we continue working on these things. Uh, my goal on Wednesday night is to help us sharpen our axe. Uh, very, very important that we do that. Uh, in fact, just in closing, let's take a minute because I've shared this before, but I think it would be important to us. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Unless you sit there and say, well, Brother Greg, why should all this matter? Why, should I, why are you taking time out of church to teach this stuff? I think it's very important to us. And if we don't learn uh, our history... And if we don't learn our doctrine, if we don't learn where our doctrine comes from and how we can rely upon it, then we are destined to let it be corrupted in the future. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, in verse number 10, um, Solomon writes, If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. And I look at these Wednesday nights as time for us to wet the edge of the axe. Uh, can we win people to Christ without all of this knowledge? Oh, I'm sure we can. God's Holy Spirit can still draw the hearts of men. And He has promised that His Word would not return void. But how much more difficult is it making the task of sharing the gospel with people when we are not fully prepared? When we have not... Uh, the Bible talks about uh, the watchman that stands on the wall and gives the, the warning of the trumpet and talks about if the trumpet make an uncertain sound, wherewith shall the people be warned. And, uh, folks, we don't want to make an uncertain sound in these days. Uh, we want to make a biblical and a sound um, presentation of the, the, the Word of God and the Gospel. And uh, we want to be able to handle God's Word well and effectively. Uh, we live in a day where, again, we have gotten very careless in handling God's Word a lot of it's been because we've gotten too busy. Uh, some of it has been because we've not had to strive for it. We've not had to labor for it. And you, we all understand and know this, especially if you have kids, that if you give them something rather than have them work for it, they don't appreciate it near as much. And can I tell you this? We've not had to labor. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 says we've not yet resisted unto blood. And we live in a day, and I thank the Lord for it, that we have religious liberty. And we do not have to die the martyr's death today. But if we don't hold to these things, there will come a time again where we will once again have to take a choice and make a choice and a stand of whether to cho choose a martyr's death or to uh, reject God's Word. And so, folks, I'd rather take the liberty that we have and do all that we can to propagate it to this world so that we can enjoy the religious liberty for the remaining years that God gives us on this earth. And uh, with that in mind, I hope that we will give ourselves to diligent study and that we will work and labor at knowing these things. And uh, I want to encourage you in that. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll use it, bless it. Lord, we've gone a little bit lengthy tonight, a lot of material to cover. Pray that you'll... Uh, Allow us not to miss it or lose it, but uh, perhaps that we would even refer back to the message a time or two again to get uh, a lot out of it and get all that is necessary. I pray that you'll uh, give us your power. And, Lord, all the study and all the preparation and all the work of knowing your word, 
<coughs> is nothing if we do not have your Holy Spirit enabling us and strengthening us for the work at hand. And so we ask that he go before us and prepare hearts, that he open doors of opportunity for us to present the gospel. And then, Father, that we would be ready and well-equipped to do the work you've called us to do. We pray you dismiss us now with your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. 